0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we will be answering questions about meditation practice, Buddhism, and just general life issues that we can address from a Buddhist and meditative mindfulness perspective. So if you have questions, you can post them in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation, just giving an opportunity for people to post their questions. And to give us all a clarity of mind that will enhance the benefits of the session. Spend the first
1: 15 minutes developing clarity through mindfulness.
0: Once you posted your question, just do walking or sitting. If you don't have any questions, that's okay. I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to start answering questions. All right, that's 15 minutes.
1: So feel free to post any questions you may still have in the chat. From now on, we'd ask that the only thing in the chat be questions. Anything else will just be removed to keep it organized. And once you've asked your question, don't pay attention to the chat, just... Close your eyes, stay present, stay mindful, and we'll start to
2: answer questions now. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. I've been meditating for about a month using mantras. I see that I am slowly getting dependent on meditation to live a life that I can tolerate. When I think of my meditation journey, I am afraid of depending my life on something. Can always depending on meditation be a good thing? If it is a good thing, how can I cultivate my mind so that I accept this dependence? Well,
1: it's a temporary thing. It's like, suppose you're stuck in the mud. Suppose you're an elephant and suppose you're stuck in the mud and you can't get out of the mud even though you're a very strong elephant so you someone takes a rope and ties the rope around your uh, torso and pulls you out of the mud the rope you're depending on the rope to get out of the mud uh and as long as you're not out of the mud, you're going to keep depending on it. And so if the if the, uh, if the rope is let go of, then you'll slide back into the mud. Or let's say you're a human being and not an elephant, and you're holding on to the rope, so you can't let go of the rope, or else you won't get out of the mud. Um, that doesn't mean there's a, a, it's a crutch, it's a tool, and it's helping you out of the mud. But once you're out of the mud, you don't need the the tool anymore. You don't need the rope. And that's this the nature of meditation. You're still most likely in the phase where you still need the rope. You still need the meditation. Um, and that's because the results of meditation, the benefits, are two-tiered. So the ordinary tier of benefits are temporary, are um, uh, impermanent or, or unstable, in the sense they can be forgotten, the habits that you develop can erode, can fade away, you can go back to your bad habits. But the second tier is the wisdom, and the wisdom doesn't go away. The wisdom of seeing the Four Noble Truths is what you might call permanent. It's a permanent shift in the mind. And so after that time, you're, you're likely to still um, cultivate mindfulness. But even if you were to stop, temporarily you would find that the shift has uh, changed something for the better it has freed you from things that you never have to be concerned about any about again so you have to see it that way and it of course has to be that way because it's not some instant pill that fixes all your problems but through uh, diligence like anything else through training you you can reach a level where you, uh, where you are changed, um, and yeah, the, the mindfulness has this special capacity to lead to the realization of cessation, where the mind lets go and is free from suffering, even just for a moment, but that. Experience changes you.
0: I go to school
2: and all the other kids use harmful speech and do bad things. Instead of talking to them or spending time with them, I remain silent and keep to myself. Is what I'm doing right? Well
1: um, I hope it's not all the kids. You might want to confirm whether it's all the other kids uh, or whether there might be some of your peers who are like you or have um, positive attitudes uh, but yes, certainly, staying away from those who are engaging in harmful speech and actions is. To your benefit, I mean that's not something that should be up for question. If you think about it yourself, that's just kind of logical. If uh, if actions and speech are harmful, then uh, it's really hard to argue that there's any benefit from having anything to do with that. Um, some people will argue that not not necessarily Buddhists, but people will argue that important that you speak up against certain actions and speech Buddhism kind of uh, shies away from that in general um, there are instances where you might defend someone else or defend yourself there's also room sometimes for conversation with certain individuals uh, bullies for example in certain instances um, you can see an An opportunity to change their mind in some way. It also depends how old you are, and of course, depends on the the individual. Some people just have very bad habits, and it's not likely that you're going to change them. Oftentimes, it's just um, a bandwagon, as they say. Everyone um, hops on the bandwagon, just follows what everyone else is doing, And, and some of these people are not necessarily rotten and they can be influenced Um, but sometimes just being a good example of engaging in positive speech and action and refraining from harmful speech and action can can change people but yes staying to yourself is the safe way it's a good sort of default um you can consider that to yourself that it may be true that i could influence others in a positive way but um unless i'm sure and until i have the ability to do that through my own spiritual development uh, i should be careful not to just um, not to just blindly try to fix a problem without any certainty that i'm capable but uh, it's the kind of thing that as you grow spiritually, you get better at picking your fights. It's not about picking fights, but picking your, your, your battles, your engagement to cases where you're pretty sure that you can do something positive and engage in positive action and speech.
2: To what extent? Should sense restraint be developed before practicing meditation?
1: I wouldn't say to any extent um, right I mean honestly, I wouldn't do anything before practicing meditation in the sense that I'm not going to practice meditation until I do x, y, or Z um, so I kind of get the sort of i reasoning behind your question, but there's really probably no question like this that makes any sense. Sense restraint is something that will support your meditation if, if you're referring to sense restraint outside of mindfulness, because mindfulness is, of course, a type of sense restraint. It's the most practical, the most important, practically speaking, type of sense restraint. But uh, apart from that, there are other types of sense restraint where you actually... Make a disconscious effort not to see certain things, not to hear certain things, as a protection to to allow you to cultivate mindfulness um, in in peace and with a uh, focused mind. But you certainly not something you should do before you meditate. You should be you should practice mindfulness uh, as a means of sense restraint.
2: Does labeling have a positive impact on the development of banya when we are labeling can we say we are observing with banya?
1: Yes, one way of understanding banya is the knowing of something for what it is so when you say to yourself rising, a part of that is being aware of the rising as rising, and that might not seem very um, very profound, but it is, in fact quite profound it's profound to say that wisdom is the state of seeing things just as they are to realize that the problem isn't that we're not seeing something hidden per se the problem is that we're too blind to see what's actually happening um so to some extent it is wisdom To on another level there is a wisdom that will come as a result, which is when the clarity builds and you have this clarity that um, causes the mind to let go. But that's honestly on a, on a very small level happening every time you note you're, you're letting go momentarily. There's not clinging because of the clarity, the the simplicity of the awareness there's none of the baggage it's just that when you do that uh, repeatedly systematically and um the results of repeated clarity will be what what we call might call wisdom on another level where the mind sees ah nothing's worth clinging to and it lets go
2: Even with the noting and naming, my mind wanders very often. I just started this practice a month ago. Do you have any tips if I need to make any adjustments?
1: Right, so noting is not for the purpose of stopping the mind from wandering. It's for the purpose of noticing things like the mind wandering. Because the mind wandering is a sign of impermanent suffering and non self, it's teaching you about the nature of reality normally those kind of experiences are unwelcome and unacceptable we think of that as uh, not right as as a reality that that has to be changed has to be fixed um and we see a lot of things like that but throughout our lives we're constantly trying to fix trying to change or trying to hold on to experiences and you're starting to learn things that will change that attitude, will move you away from the attitude of trying to fix, control, change, cling to things that will allow you or, or provide you with the uh, pr- the attitude um, by which you will allow things to come and go and stop trying to fix and change things. Because a cause of the mind wandering is a, a part of it, not not the whole reason, but a part of it is the um, the attachments of various kinds that we have which lead to excitement and cause the mind they stimulate the mind in getting distracted. Why is the mind wandering usually because it likes or dislikes or is uh, obsessed with something and clinging to something in some way? So uh, yeah, not really any adjustments, be patient and adjust your uh, attitude if you have an attitude of trying to stop, uh, for example, mind wandering, of expectations for your mind to stop wandering, expectations of, of happy, pleasant feelings or calm feelings or that sort of thing. Those kind of expectations only make you suffer in the long term. Letting go means letting come. Just not distracted
0: if you're thinking a lot. Distracted, distracted.
2: I have ADHD and have problems associated with that. Medication helps me concentrate better, and that helps me meditate better as well. Is it wrong for me to meditate while taking medication? No,
1: it's not wrong, but the medication is a crutch, and it is preventing you from facing some of the things that um, we hope we would hope to eventually face in mindfulness. So it will limit the e- efficacy of mindfulness just by its very nature of avoiding and um, of not dealing with. But... Um, it's not un- unwholesome for you to meditate just because you're on medication. It's just going to be limited. So it's uh, recommended that you talk to your doctor about slowly reducing your medication as you cultivate mindfulness as a means of of challenging yourself and thinking of it as a challenge and in, in a, 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 a successive challenging Uh, of the reduction of medication whereby you face the things that the medication is meant to suppress. Remember, mindfulness is not about concentrating better. Concentrating better doesn't help you meditate better. It makes meditation easier. So if meditation is too hard or if life is too hard and so you feel the need to take medication, then. I'm not going to tell you not to do that, but um, mindfulness is about facing challenges. It's not about making things easier. It's about becoming stronger in the face of adversity.
2: Is there a way to help with tension? My tension in the jaws is literally moving my head in meditation, and I hear my jaw clenching and crackling, and I'm a bit worried about that.
1: Well, tension isn't a problem per se, not not in terms of mindfulness. I mean, it could be a problem physically. So I'm not a doctor, I can't comment on that. But um, from from the point of view of mindfulness, it's not hurting your meditation. So you would just note tense, tense. That tension can be exacerbated by lack of mindfulness. So mindfulness can help indirectly when when you're stressed, you might not stress. Worry is, of course, going to make it worse. Worry is a form of stress. So you would want to note worried, worried, or afraid, afraid. But um, the way to really prevent worry is to change your attitude towards the things that worry you. So you would note tense, tense. You're not trying to fix it, just try and see it for what it is.
2: How should we understand sati? Is it focusing attention on the object to the exclusion of everything else? Or is it a relaxed and open awareness in which a small part is focused on the object? It's neither. Sati is the grasping of the object
1: as it is. So it relates to. The lack of any sort of baggage, um, the lack of any sort of extrapolation, it relates to the lack of, of, um, or um, not the lack. Let's um, relates to the strength in terms of not not having a weak awareness that would allow you to, that would allow for reactionary for triggering of reactions and that sort of thing. Um, sati means to remember, or or means remembrance. So it means that you um, remember the experience, that the mind stays with the experience, or it doesn't get lost in extrapolation. That's the point. Or seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. So it 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 it, it involves concentration, but it's not concentration. So it's not about focus or attention. Those are parts of the experience, but the word sati refers to this sort of practical activity by which we remind ourselves and by which we have the memory of the present where we don't forget is the point, where we we have lack of forgetfulness. We're not distracted from the experience by reactions and extrapolation and judgment and that sort of thing. So it's focusing on the object to the exclusion of any judgment of it, you could say. But really it's not about focus, it's about recognition. Uh, The the proximate cause of sati is is strong recognition, tirasanya, which means when you recognize something, you reaffirm that. That's why the mantra leads to sati. When you say to yourself, seeing, It reaffirms that, and so it evokes what we call sati.
2: How does one go about being mindful of others, testing and challenging one's precepts beyond what might be one's capacity to honor them?
1: Well, others testing and challenging one's precepts is not an experience. So, you be mindful of your experiences. You can't experience people testing or challenging your precepts. You know, you can experience a seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. So, be mindful of the four satipatthana is another way of put it: the body, feelings, mind, and dhamma. Be mindful of your emotions, liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. Be mindful of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. If you're mindful of these things, you really shouldn't have a problem with conceptual things like beings, people, precepts. All of these things things are just concepts. And because of the clarity that comes from your uh, focus on experience you'll be able to see through any kind of challenge or difficulty the thing about the precepts is that they involve unwholesome states of mind and mindfulness prevents that so there's no issue of
0: keeping the precepts when you're mindful During
2: meditation, I will occasionally slip into a state where I dream, but it doesn't have the same qualities as sleep, losing mindfulness. Inevitably, it goes away and mindfulness returns. What should I do?
1: Be mindful when you can. Uh, It's probably a temporary situation. I mean, there's nothing you can do to fix an experience when you're not mindful but you can be mindful if you find it happening uh, repeatedly again and again in the same session you might decide to change postures like stand up and do standing meditation or even revert to walking meditation i don't know if you're doing walking meditation but it might help if you did walking meditation first to sort of wake you up and balance your faculties But it is a common problem that beginners have, that over time should work
2: itself out. Is there a way to meditate without my legs going numb?
1: So your legs going numb is not an issue. It's not something we're trying to avoid, and it's the kind of thing that that uh, goes away over time as well. If you keep up with the meditation, you should find that eventually that doesn't happen. So just be patient with it. And be careful when you stand up after sitting meditation. don't know if you're doing walking meditation, but again, walking meditation can help with the body as well. Keep the
2: the blood flowing. Can Vipassana meditation make you more arrogant and angry? Sometimes I feel I am more angry than before when I did calming meditation or even when I didn't meditate at all. I mean,
1: it it can um, force you to face things that normally would cause you to be arrogant or angry. Uh, or angry, anyway. Arrogant is a little bit different. But... Um, shouldn't certainly make you, in the short term, I suppose, might make you even more arrogant as you start to cultivate beliefs um, about what is right and see other people doing things that are not right. A person without any beliefs of right or wrong um, doesn't usually get upset at other people for doing things they perceive as wrong, but along with vipassana meditation often comes views about what is right and wrong what is wrong and so in the beginning that can make you arrogant when you see others doing things you now perceive to be wrong but that's a religious thing that you find across the board people who are religious can often in the beginning be quite arrogant and and angry as well but again it makes you face things that are challenging when things are easy People are not uh, upset, and, and you could even say the same with arrogance, I suppose. When, when life is good, you're more willing to allow for, um, for evil even, and, and not be so concerned with it. Calming meditation also has the effect of allowing you to avoid um, challenges by blocking them out. Through the focus on the object of the calming meditation. So, again, mindfulness, in brief, mindfulness is a challenge. It's about facing things we normally don't want to face. It would be about facing the anger. So, in the long term, it's helpful, but it requires you to be vigilant, it requires practice, it requires skill. And uh, it, it often can involve stressful situations that um, you normally don't want to face, which, if you're not careful, can make you angry and potentially arrogant. If, if there's if it's about um, facing people, for example, facing experiences that you'd normally just avoid, mindfulness inclines you not to do that and then in the beginning can trigger your propensity to be arrogant what mindfulness really deals with is this propensity this potential and over time it it removes that potential because you see how it is causing you trouble so one good thing about what you're describing is that you're seeing the nature of anger and the nature of arrogance in ways that probably weren't that familiar to you before. Normally it scares us, so we think, I just shouldn't be, I'll just make sure I'm not arrogant. Um, but to some extent, seeing these things is good for you, because uh, you're, you're seeing the problems that they cause. To some extent, it's not, it doesn't mean getting angry has a value, or you should trigger it purposefully. But you're seeing that you're you're seeing your potential, you're seeing that you're not as perfect as maybe you thought you were, because meditation didn't just implant those things in your mind, you had that potential already, and mindfulness is just showing you that you're not perfect and that you have that capacity to get arrogant and angry, and what it's doing to you, which changes the capacity you when you see what it's doing to you, you're less likely to get arrogant or angry. And you won't get that from just avoiding it or blocking it or that sort of thing.
2: While I label, I am also aware of the background of my consciousness. Should I continue labeling, or how should I proceed? Well, you could
1: note something like aware, aware. It's important about these statements to recognize that that's not, um, not a continuous thing. It's not the case that, though you may think it is it's not the case where throughout your labeling you are at the same time constantly aware of background of your consciousness what happens is you realize that there is a consciousness you realize that there you've had an experience of some other kind of experience like a hearing of noise or that sort of thing you realize that that's happening and that's an arising a realization of awareness so just note it when it happens and you'll start to get better at better at focusing, but also better at um, dis- discerning or dis- making a distinction between one and the other. This is a an experience that I'm labeling. This is an experience that I'm uh, maybe not labeling, or this is an, this is a, I mean, this is an experience of the stomach rising, something that I'm focusing on, and then oh, this is an experience of hearing a noise in the background. So you just note what you experience. When it's not the thing that you are expecting, like the stomach rising and falling, then just forget about the stomach and focus on the sound saying hearing, hearing or whatever it might be.
2: Should I meditate as much as possible if I have the time? I'm just getting so dispassionate about life through meditation that it feels like there's not much joy or point in engaging in senses too much.
1: Well, as far as mindfulness goes, there's really no uh, there's no limit to how much you should engage in. So, just make sure that what you're talking about is mindfulness because it's easy to get into a um a wrong idea that it that Meditating for a certain number of hours or something is somehow beneficial. You can walk and sit for hours and not gain anything in terms of mindfulness. So make sure you're, you're look, talking about the moments. You should cultivate as many moments of mindfulness as you can. And yes, practically, that generally involves doing as much formal meditation as possible. The other thing I guess I would say is in order to ensure that that's actually happening, that you're actually cultivating mindfulness, you, you really can't. Um, compare to when you have a teacher so recommend finding a teacher if you can finding a way to engage in meditation courses possible we have an at-home course if you haven't taken it we also have intensive courses here at our center if that's interesting or just find some somewhere else near you that you can go
2: Would it speed up progress to use willpower and force to keep the eight precepts?
1: Probably not. Probably just going to make you frustrated and upset. I mean, really, using willpower and force for anything are not sustainable and they're not wholesome. They're about delusion and control clinging to self, that sort of thing. So, regardless of what it is you're trying to do with them, probably missing the point of the eight precepts.
2: Did you ever teach meditation to someone with some form of autism? How did it go, and did you have to adapt the technique? Well,
1: there's not really any way to adapt the technique if someone can um, recognize something for what it is and remind themselves of what it is they either can do that or they can't so there are people with certain states or or states of of mind certain mental conditions that will limit or even prevent them from doing that or perhaps even prevent one from explaining how to do that to them um, but to the extent that someone is able to do that they can benefit mindfulness doesn't change um the, your your mental condition um magically or or uh, immediately. And there are even, I would say, perhaps brain conditions which are likely not going to change in this life. But to the extent that one is able to, as I said, recognize something for what it is and um, use the reminder to focus the mind on that to, to create a, a stronger sense of recognition and mindfulness then they can certainly benefit from it.
2: Pleasure and pain are intrinsically neither good nor bad. Why is it bad to suffer? Why should we wish to end suffering?
1: So it's not bad to suffer. Um, It's bad to cause suffering. But it's more because the state of mind of someone who causes suffering is averse to suffering and is cultivating greater um, aversion to suffering. The, 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 so the state of mind of someone who wishes to end suffering is the problem, in fact and so the only way out of suffering because obviously your question is philosophical ask anyone practically speaking whether they want to suffer i mean ask yourself do you want to end suffering i assume the answer just in some way is is yes or are you okay with suffering the answer really is no and that's the problem the problem is that the mind doesn't want certain experiences the mind has aversion and it has desire the mind has partiality And that's a a problem um, because it is uh, it is inconsistent, or it is um, is that the word inconsistent? It is um, it, it it is it goes against itself. You don't want to suffer, but the not wanting to suffer makes you suffer, right? So it's it's just an unstable inconsistent attitude it's not cogent incoherent i think that's the word i'm looking for it's incoherent it's much more con- coherent to um not wish for anything to not have any desire for pleasure or any aversion to pain that's how you free yourself from suffering that's why we talk about letting go because this state of clinging is incoherent You want certain things, and you don't get those things. I mean, basically, you want happiness, and you don't get that. You want to be free from suffering, and you don't get that. And insofar as that's happening, it's just incoherent. And seeing clearly points that out to you. That's the key, is that when you see things as they are, that stops. When that is happening, it's happening because you are not seeing things as they are. So you can say things like this. Of course, the real answer to the sort of line of thinking that you're going down is that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if anyone come, becomes enlightened at all. It doesn't matter because that's just a mattering. Is just a, a concept. Matters to who? Matters to God? Matters to your neighbors? Matters to the pope it doesn't matter it's just incoherent and so the inclination is to uh, try to find some way out of it and um unless you have the clarity of mind of a buddha that trying to find some way out of it ultimately makes it worse it makes you more um, they suffer more. It makes you gives you more of the thing that you don't want and less of the thing that you want, which is incoherent. And so you can say that a person who follows the Buddha's teaching uh, becomes more coherent and they have less of this sort of um, getting the opposite
0: of what you intend. Should so you I could argue
1: that sorry, you could argue that that's better if you want, but it's it's better in a fairly logical sort of way because it's more coherent. That's all. It's not getting what you're not intending and not getting what you're intending. It's having your intentions and your and the results be uh, in accordance. But practically speaking, you know, people don't want to suffer, so freedom from suffering is the goal. And I mean, why I kind of make a deal about it is because, as I said, um, it, it it's uh, we usually go about things the wrong way. And part of your quest, your question does bring up a good point that um, you really need to look at suffering in a new way if you want to be free from suffering. Basically, if you want to be free from suffering, obviously. The point is you have to not want to be free from suffering. You have to give up the wanting to be free from suffering in order to be free from suffering. Kind of a paradox. But certainly a different way of looking at things than we're normally used to.
0: Should
2: I note the experience going on as an experience or object of meditation where there is a watcher Sometimes the experience is just there, with no experiencer.
0: You
1: should note the experience as an experience, because it's not sometimes. That is actually all there is. If there is a sense of of a watcher, you can note that, but it's just a sense. The reality is that there is just the experience. There is no experiencer involved. That's just a perception, a conception. So you certainly shouldn't evoke or invoke any kind of watcher of any sort. It's just a view or belief or conception.
2: Which would be more detrimental to the practice: intentionally killing a mosquito or indulging in a sexual act? And this is like from one
1: of those uh, those books. Which is worse? Which which would you which would you rather do, or something like that? I'm not going to answer this question. Um, I mean, whoever asks it. Uh, I and mean, what is the point of the question? This is something you're you're being forced to do. You're being held at gunpoint and said, "Look, do one or these one or another of these things." You know what these are about. So, um, I, I guess I would say uh, outright, don't kill mosquitoes. And if you're going to indulge in sexual acts, well, try and be mindful and conscientious in in, in regards to. The circumstances. And if you're really serious about Buddhism, consider to free yourself from the need for such things.
2: Certainly don't kill. Mindfulness is better than maximizing pleasure, but being mindful is still all about myself. What is Buddhism's perspective on altruism? Why shouldn't I give altruism priority over my mindfulness? Because what you call altruism is not helpful unless you have mindfulness.
1: Without the wisdom that comes from mindfulness, we can never truly help others. The help that we might provide is superficial, might be practically helpful. Like if someone is on fire, well, that it's it's helpful to them practically if you help put the fire out so that they can go on to practice mindfulness. But it doesn't mean that you putting the fire out is going to make them free from suffering. In other words it's it may be altruistic and it's probably something a meditator should do if the meditator next to you suddenly gets lit on fire you should help them put the fire out but uh, it's not really going to solve anyone's problems and the other thing you can say about altruism is that it is pointless in the first pointless in the first place because again what does it matter you helping others what does it matter it doesn't solve the issue that we were talking about in the other question that you are incoherent that you want certain things and you're doing things that lead you away from them that you don't want certain things and you're doing things that are leading you towards them, those things there's incoherence and and altruism can help in in the sense that it makes you a, a more happy and and comfortable with yourself, and can help to focus your mind. So goodness is, is of course, praised by the Buddha and Buddhists in general, doing good deeds to help others, but uh, ultimately only because of how it helps you with this incoherence of not getting the things you want and getting the things you don't want. Um, I mean, practically speaking, uh, someone who is mindful is far more altruistic than those who are unmindful. Mindfulness, all other things being equal, improves your capacity to be helpful to others by an order of magnitude.
2: Thank you, Bhante. We've come to the end of the hour and asked all the questions in Tier 1. Okay, thank you all.
1: Thank you, Chris and Jim and whoever else is around helping. Uh, thank you all for coming out have a good week wish you all peace,
0: happiness, freedom from suffering Sadhu Sadhu